chapter seven, beginning in verse two, it says. Open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. I do not say this to condemn, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts. Inside were fears. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with with which he was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceived that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance for you were made sorrow, sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death for observe this very thing. That you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication in all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God may appear to you. Therefore, we have been comforted with your comfort and we rejoiced exceedingly more for the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I am not ashamed. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so, our boasting to Titus was found true and his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him. Therefore, I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. Paul's prayers and concerns and commitments were beginning to bear fruit in Corinth. You'll remember that some in Corinth were critical of Paul's ministry. And they were disobedient to the Holy Spirit. But now Paul urges them to be reconciled to him. Paul expressed his concerns over the trials that he went through as he waited for Titus in Ephesus. And now Paul explains how God comforted Paul and gave him joy. Paul was comforted over the arrival of Titus in verses 1 through 6 and over the Corinthians' repentance and obedience in verses 7 through 12. And then he was comforted over their reception of Titus in verses 13 through 16. Now, we don't always connect the dots when it comes to comfort and revival. 
But they are related, as you will soon see. John Newton, who, of course, wrote the very famous song about amazing grace, how sweet the sound, also wrote how sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrows, heals his wounds and drives away his fears. He's talking about comfort. And so the chapter, remember, began with verse one. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and the spirit perfecting holiness in the fear of God. It was a carryover, if you will, from the last chapter as Paul begins to connect the dots of cleansing and separation. And here in verse two, he begins another thought a faithful minister and a solid foundation. He says in verse two, OK, having done all of that, Open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. Paul urges the Corinthians to receive him, to receive his ministry. Remember to make room in their hearts for him. And there was no reason why it shouldn't be so, because the critics were unjust and mistaken Paul's ministry was free from injury. Paul refused to injure anyone or lead them down the road to immoral behavior or take advantage of people financially, unlike some people today. You'll note that a faithful minister is marked by gentleness. We didn't wrong anyone. By purity. We've corrupted no one. By integrity. We haven't cheated anyone. And by the way. If you want to destroy your ministry, injure them, corrupt people, act in a way that is inconsistent with the character of God and the nature of God. And guess what? You won't have a church anymore and you won't have a ministry anymore. Paul warmly and tenderly appeals to the opposition. He says, open your hearts to us. And then in verse three, look what it says. I do not say this to condemn, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Paul's writing and Paul's behavior and Paul's demeanor was not meant to put them on a downer or to condemn them. Remember, the word condemn means the judicial pronouncement of guilt for crimes that are committed. Paul isn't rebuking them, cautiously confronting them with a view that he's that they're wrong in order to bring them to a place of of. um, False guilt, but to assure them of his deep affection, he says to die together and to live together. And it's an idiomatic expression. It's his way of saying I want to continue with you in life and I'm willing to continue with you even in death. When people get married, they'll often use the expression till death do us part. We might think of this as Paul saying, I am willing to live for you and I am willing to die for you. And again, you'll note his great love for the church. I don't say this to condemn you. Part of the point that Paul is making is I'm not accusing you 
in order to avoid some accusation that you might have on my part. Because remember, he's already indicated that he doesn't have anything to hide or anything to be afraid of. And so in verse four, he says, great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. In other words, Paul explains his plain speech, why he's so willing to be honest and why he's willing to be transparent. And the secret is in his profound affection for the people of Corinth. He sees them as not just friends, but close friends. I noticed that since I got back on Facebook on Saturday, that you have acquaintances and you have friends and you have close friends. And I always wondered what it took to be on someone's Facebook page under the designation close friends. If Paul had a Facebook Page, he would put everyone in the Corinthian church as close friends. And that closeness causes him to boast of them in other people's presence. Now, you've got to understand something. Remember, is the Corinthian church carnal? Yes. Immature? Yes. Immoral? Yes. They get the wrong things right and the right things wrong? Yes. But even in spite of all of those things, Paul loves them. And they shouldn't interpret his bluntness as a lack of love. But rather, he was truly, really fond of them. Paul is bold and willing to speak the truth. And Paul has dealt with the awful corruptions. Again, for those of you who are even the least bit familiar with 1 Corinthians, it's a book about division, pride, immorality, fraud, questionable practices. And in spite of all of those things, Paul is willing to brag about them. Great is my boasting on your behalf. In other words, it's his way of saying, whenever I have a chance to talk to anyone about anything, I bring up you and the church and how much I am so grateful to be a part of your life and to be your pastor. That's basically what he's saying. Now, remember when he says, Great is my boasting on your behalf. The church has already repented. They've already experienced the first fruits of revival. And part of the first fruits of revival is the minister's joy. Paul's confidence proved well-founded. He had always hoped that they would pull through. Now, I want you to think about that. The reason why he's boasting and the reason why he's talking to, about them to anyone who's willing to listen is because they've come around. They've turned from sin. They've turned to the Savior. They've put away pride and division and immorality and fraud and questionable practices. If you've ever been in a home or in a relationship or in a church where you said to that person, that home, that church, it doesn't look like they're ever going to change. And then they do. The husband comes around. The wife comes around. The, the children come around. The church comes around. 
Paul refused to write the Corinthians off as hopeless and carnal and divided and immature. And I know that sometimes it's easy to get frustrated because you work with someone, you love someone, you pray for someone, you labor with someone. You cry tears and you sweat blood and it doesn't look like they're ever going to change. And then they do. You know, a pastor needs confidence. A leader needs confidence and hope and determination. But revival can come only if the leaders believe that the people will repent of their sin and turn to God. So if you're in a place or in a circumstance where you wonder if anything is ever going to change, guess what? The change has to begin with you in your heart. Instead of being so frustrated and upset over the other person's unwillingness to change. You need to take control of what you do have control over your heart, your life, your circumstances. And now Paul makes a passing statement about comfort and joy. And in just in a few verses, the explanation is going to be given. It would seem again that the Corinthians had genuine compassion for the poor and the needy. You'll remember that when Paul was going in his journeys, the the the. The apostles and the teachers and the disciples had said, look, Paul, we understand that you have a unique and special calling. God has called us to minister to our brothers, the Jews, and God has called you to minister to the to the Gentiles. And we were grateful that God has a plan and a purpose for you. The only thing we want you to to remember is to help the poor and the needy to remember that there are people who have a lot less than you do. Paul said, Of which thing I was more than happy to do. And so he would take up an offering. And as he would take up the offering, it was to help the needy saints. Now remember, as he took up the offering in order to help the needy saints, there were challenges that went with that. If you have money from the offering and you're making your way back to Jerusalem, are you a target for thieves, criminals, highwaymen? The answer is yes. But again, the Corinthians had genuine compassion for the poor and the needy. So why indeed was Paul filled with comfort and joy? I know it sounds like a Christmas song, huh? Because he's filled with comfort and joy. Let me just tell you about the word comfort. It's a word that means with strength. You know that word. You have tears and someone helps you dry the tears. You're weak and someone becomes your strength. You're incapacitated. That's what it actually means. It means to bring strength when you have little strength. The answer is that Titus brought Paul good news. The news brought renewed strength and hope and joy. What was the good news that Titus was bringing to Paul? Guess what? The people got your letter. Guess what? They understand the deep concerns that you have. Guess what? 
They're turning from their sin and they're turning to the Savior. The people who were critical of you are no longer critical of you. The people who questioned your integrity and your authority, they're now willing to embrace the fact that you have integrity and authority. The Corinthians had turned a corner. They were headed in the right direction. And guess what? Paul was filled with joy. He speaks of his love for the church, a willingness to tell the truth, a confident hope in their ability to change. And now he speaks of comfort in verse five. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts. Inside were fears. Let me help you understand the historical background of that passage. Paul had left Jerusalem, had begun a missionary journey, had established a church in Ephesus. He had labored there for two or three years. From Ephesus, he journeyed to Troas. So he leaves Ephesus and he journeys to Troas in order to try and find Titus. And when Paul doesn't find Titus, he will continue his journey to Macedonia. Now, again, if you're unfamiliar with geography, Ephesus is in the southern part of Turkey. If you take from the southern part of Turkey and you go all the way north, there's a place called the Bosphorus and the Hellespont in what is now modern day, not Constantinople, but Istanbul. It's where Asia and Europe meet. So he crosses over the Bosphorus. He goes to Macedonia, which is the northern part of Greece. Paul's journey is filled with terror and trauma and trouble. There is persecution on the outside. There is distress on the inside. There are beatings. There are incarcerations. There are shipwrecks. And so with no rest for his body and with his soul under the constant intimidation of fear and anxiety as he's thinking about what's going on in Jerusalem. He's thinking about what's going on in Ephesus. He's thinking about what's going on in Corinth. He's desperate to find Titus, and Titus is lost, and he doesn't know if he's alive or if he's dead. And that'll fill fill you with fear and anxiety, won't it? Can you imagine... If you had family in Oklahoma City and more and you hear about this tornado that comes and it cuts a swath a mile and a half wide and 17,000, 18,000, 19,000, 20,000 homes are destroyed. But it just so happens that your mother, father, brother, sister, friend or relative lives in the path of the tornado. And you haven't heard from them. And you don't know if they're alive or if they're dead. And so with no rest for his body, with fear and anxiety, and again, it's connected, it seems in part to the fact that he was unable to connect with Titus and receive information. He wants to know what's going on with the church. He wants to know what's going on with Titus. He's received 
No information about the spiritual condition of the Corinthians. Paul was faithful in spite of the persecution on the outside and the trouble on the inside. He reminds the reader that with no rest and with no let up and in spite of the trouble and in spite of the problems and in spite of the conflicts from those who opposed him and in spite of the distress both inside and outside of the church. In spite of the criticism, the abuse, the attacks, and the persecution, he's holding on. And I want you to just pause for a moment and think. Paul had to endure heavy trials for a long time before God moved. And you might have to endure heavy trials for a long time as you think about circumstances. Well, why isn't God working in my husband's life? Why isn't God working in my wife's life? Why isn't God working in the children's life? Why isn't God working in my life? How come I keep finding myself in the same situation over and over again of immaturity, of rebellion, of disobedience or whatever it happens to be? But Paul is going to have to endure some difficulties. But remember what Paul's goal is. Paul wants to see the Corinthian believers alive, well, serving the Lord, rejoicing in Christ. Does it shock you that just like Jesus, Paul had to learn obedience by the things that he suffered? Does it come as a shock to you that sometimes you might have to do without or that you might have to experience disappointment or that you might have to experience obstacles on the outside and trials on the inside before the hoped for outcome manifests itself in the circumstance that you find yourself in? God will meet the need of his servant But as he grows his servant while he meets the need, the way that I would think about it is this way. God will meet the need of his servant as he changes the servant into the servant he needs. And that God might be changing you, molding you, shaping you, changing you. Causing your focus to change and your affections to change. And so Paul writes, nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus over and over again. You hear that word comfort. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, I think he's talking about himself, comforted us by the coming of Titus. God in his grace and his mercy stepped in and comforted Paul with a happy reunion. The happy reunion is, at last, I found Titus, and at last, he's brought me the good news of God's grace and mercy. There's a scripture in Proverbs chapter 27, verse 17, that says, Iron sharpens iron, and so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. In other words, Paul was full of questions about the spiritual condition of the Corinthian people and Titus himself. And Titus comes and he's full of answers. 
Have you ever wanted to know about someone who is sick or someone who is injured or someone who is in trouble and you were dying to know? You know, that's the way it was the last several weeks when I was in Israel and Turkey. And I didn't have access to my phone and I didn't have access to my computer and I couldn't get information and I didn't understand. I knew that my brother was in a horrible accident, but I didn't know exactly how it happened or how extensive the injuries were or what the outlook was. That can be frustrating. If it's your mother or your father or your brother or your sister and you are completely in the dark about their condition. And the same is true of a person's spiritual condition. You don't have the luxury of being able to look into a person's heart. You don't always know the darkness or the trial or the wickedness or the rebellion or the resistance that's going on. You don't always know that a person might be putting on a facade and and they're making like everything is fine when in fact they're not fine. But what a wonderful joy it is. To discover that a person's heart has changed and their outlook has changed. What a joy it is to discover that a person who wasn't serving the Lord is now serving the Lord. A person who was living a life of rebellion and disobedience is uh, is now living a life of submission and humility and holiness to the Lord. And so, again, there's this fervent sorrow and real repentance. It says in verse seven, and not only by his coming, that's the coming of Titus, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you. When he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. In other words, Titus brought news to Paul. Guess what? The Corinthians, they're not mad at you. They're not estranged from you. They don't think that you're a fraud. They think that you're okay. Paul had written the letter. Now Titus comes with the news of their response, and it is wonderful news. In spite of the concentrated effort on a part of a determined few to undermine his ministry, the false teachers that had sought to alienate and aggravate the affections of the majority, Paul's ministry and integrity was intact. The saints were anxious to see Paul. They had brought forth the true fruit of repentance and sorrow. And I think it means that they demonstrated real sorrow over their willingness to tolerate sin in the assembly. For those of you, again, who are unfamiliar with 1 Corinthians chapter 5, remember there was a man who was involved in a sexually immoral relationship with none other than his own father's wife. And Paul was heartbroken. That the church had tolerated such horrible sin. And so he's confronting them about divisions, about pride, about immorality. And then in verse 8 it says, for even if I made you sorry with my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it. For I perceived that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Probably reading that going, what in the world is he talking about? Which letter? Is this the letter that you and I have in our Bible called 1 Corinthians? 
Is this the second letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians? Not the second letter that we're reading right now, but a letter that's disappeared from history and that we have no record of other than this statement because Paul had actually written three letters to the Corinthians. First Corinthians, an unknown second letter, and third Corinthians, which in your Bible is called second Corinthians, which we're reading right at this very moment. Confused? Good. I see some of you going, no, I'm not confused. This makes perfect sense. Was Paul sorry for writing the first letter or the second letter? I'm not sure. Whatever else, the letter seemed to serve as a rebuke, and indeed it must have caused pain. And Paul anticipated their reaction that it might make them sorry. Did Paul do something wrong? Probably not. Was Paul sorry that he was speaking the truth in love and that that caused the reader sorrow? Possibly. Has anyone ever said to you, this is going to hurt you more than it hurts me? Or have you ever had to say, I wish to God I didn't have to tell you this. I got a phone call on my radio program yesterday from a lady who called me. And she said that her mother had stolen a great deal of money. And she didn't know how to confront her. She didn't know how to bring it up. She didn't know how to talk about it. And she didn't know what to do. Because she thought, if I bring this up, I don't know how she's going to react or respond. And I don't know what kind of an effect this is going to have on our relationship and our friendship. And I said to her, you know, the Bible says that love covers a multitude of sins. And it is true that love covers a multitude of sins. But sometimes a relative or a friend does something that is so fundamentally wrong that it changes your perception of who that person is. And you have to talk about it. You have to deal with with it. And Paul had to deal with this. And sometimes even when you speak the truth in love, it will be received or not received. It will be well received or not well received. Paul knew the plans and purposes of God. Paul knew that the letter was likely to cause pain. He also knew that it was likely to cause sorrow, but he was hoping that it was the kind of sorrow that doesn't last forever. It's the kind of sorrow that brings a person to a place where they realize that there is a real problem and it has to be dealt with like a deep wound or a festering sore. Paul had to cut through the cancerous tissue. I don't think doctors enjoy inflicting pain on their patients. I don't think the doctor wants to put the person under the knife or stick the needle in your body. But guess what? Sometimes because you have a central nervous system, you have to inflict a little pain in order to bring about healing. And I think that that's what Paul's talking about. Paul doesn't enjoy inflicting pain. Paul has no joy in seeing the saints suffer, even if it's for a season. 
And in verse nine, he says, now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance for you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. And what he means is ultimate loss. Paul makes it clear that he finds no joy in causing pain, but that their temporary sorrow brought them to a place of profound repentance. As a matter of fact, Phillips translates the end of this verse. In other words, the result was to make you sorry as God would have you sorry and not merely to make you offended by what we said. In other words, the point of bringing up the problem was to bring them to a place where they would recognize the sin and be willing to turn from the sin. Moffat has a slightly different shade in the translation. He writes, for you were pained as God meant you to be pained. And so you got no harm from what I did. It may come as a shock and a surprise to you, but God made you with a central nervous system for a good reason. If you didn't experience pain, you would miss it. As a matter of fact, the absence of pain isn't something that's healthy. It's something that's unhealthy. As a matter of fact, in the old world of the ancient world, there was a disease that its most profound symptom was an absence of pain. It was called leprosy. And it becomes a type and a picture of sin in the believer's life. In other words, sin creates a mechanism inside of you where you become less and less likely to be convicted by the sin. And that's what sin does. It creates a hardness and a dullness of heart. The bottom line, the Corinthians experienced a genuine change of heart and suffered no permanent damage from the rebuke delivered by the Apostle Paul. And so in verse 10, it says, for godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Paul contrasts godly sorrow and ungodly sorrow. What is godly sorrow? Well, I'm going to suggest to you that godly sorrow means sorrow, which comes into a person's life after they've committed a sin Which leads to repentance. In other words, you change your mind and you change your heart and you change the direction that you're going. You realize that God is speaking to you and you take sides with God against yourself and against the sin. This is what it means when it says confess your sin and he is faithful and just to forgive you. Confess means to agree with God concerning your sin. So when you agree with God concerning your sin and you said that lying, that stealing, that cheating, that wickedness, that stupidity, that thing that I did, I'm agreeing with God. It's wrong. That's what he's talking about. You agree with God about the sin and you're willing to turn from the sin. When Paul speaks of the godly sorrow that works repentance to salvation, I don't think he's talking about the salvation of the soul, because guess what? The Corinthians are saved people. The Corinthians had received Christ. Salvation can mean a lot of different things. 
The soul is saved when the sinner trusts Christ as Savior. But here, deliverance, a, a, a word for salvation we might also use as deliverance, but it can mean deliverance from any type of sin. It can mean deliverance from any kind of bondage or affliction. In other words, it isn't that you have to get saved over and over again, but it does mean that sometimes because of a repetitive sin in your life, you need to come to grips with that repetitive sin. That's probably what it means. Ungodly sorrow sides with Satan and self and continues in the sin. We think of the word regret or remorse. But regret and remorse is not the same as repentance. You see. This is the kind of sorrow that brings bitterness and hardness You might be frustrated with your sin. You might be bitter about your sin. You might be desperate about your sin. You might be frustrated about your sin. But it's not repentance if whatever you do means you continue in your sin. And the perfect example, of course, is Judas. Was Judas sorry that he betrayed Jesus? The Bible says he was sorry. But it wasn't a sorrow that led to repentance. It was a sorrow that led to him hanging himself and killing himself. I've used the illustration of Herod and his dancing daughter-in-law, Salome. You know the story. They had imprisoned John the Baptist because he was arguing and preaching against Herod's unlawful marriage. And Herod decides to throw a birthday party, invites the bigwigs. His dancing daughter-in-law puts on a show that would have probably made Kim Kardashian blush. But Herod is sufficiently aroused that he offers her up to a third of his kingdom. And Salome says to her mother, what should I ask for? And she said, I want you to ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter. And so Salome goes back and she asks for John's head on a platter. And the Bible says something very interesting. It says that Herod was sorry. And then he killed John the Baptist because he didn't want to look bad in front of his family and friends. Sorrow that leads to self-destruction, sorrow that leads to the destruction of others is not repentance. And so that's the difference between godly sorrow and ungodly sorrow. You might be dealing with a person who says, you know, I'm really sorry that I hurt you. Sorry enough to change. Sorry enough to go in a different direction. Sorry enough to cease and desist. And then embrace the resources that God has in Christ. In verse 11 it says, For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What vehement desire. What zeal. What vindication. In all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. This verse is a difficult verse. Particularly difficult to explain. But before I tackle the difficulties, let me just sum up a couple of things. 
Remember, the church had a deep desire to correct its evil. They longed to be reconciled with their pastor. And this becomes the important part for you and for me. Revival came when godly sorrow and repentance gave them a path to hope. In other words, remember, these are two people, Paul and the Corinthian church, who were estranged from one another. But the Corinthians had changed. They changed their mind and they changed their heart and they changed their circumstances. Revival comes when godly sorrow and repentance gives you a clear path to hope. And guess what? Revival isn't an emotional outburst that takes place as you as you bang tambourines and you sing songs at the top of your voice. Revival begins in the quietness of your heart with a willingness to turn from sin and to turn to the Savior. A corrupt church, a carnal church, a divided church, a church that attacked its minister was now weeping over its sin and was weeping over the way they treated each other. And Paul seems to be making the point that the experience of the Corinthians is proof positive of Paul's words. Paul's in effect saying, here is evidence in your life. What did the godly sorrow, real repentance, produce? A willingness to be careful. Their indifference became concern. What clearing of yourselves? We might think of clearing as a clearing of charges or accusations, but I don't think it means that they tried to justify themselves or excuse their actions, but rather they took steps to resolve the matter. They tried to clear themselves of further guilt by putting a stop to what was going wrong. And see, this becomes, again, an important point. It isn't just a willingness to confess your sin or a willingness to own up to the action. What indignation, he says. I think it refers to their attitude towards the sinner because of the reproach that it had brought on the name of Christ. In other words, you're angry. Not simply at the person who sinned. And I want you to think about that for just a moment. It may refer to the reproach brought on the name of Christ. But it might refer to the attitude about themselves. And by that, I mean forever allowing such a thing to go on in the first place without taking action in order to bring a stop to it. What fear, he says, most certainly, I think it means the fear of the Lord. It also might include the thought that they visited or they feared a visit from Paul. Now, again, I think that it means the fear of God. But it might mean fear in the sense that Paul might show up. And that Paul, instead of having a staff of correction, would have a rod of discipline. Do you remember when your mom used to say, you wait till your father gets home? I think that might be it. But maybe not. What vehement desire. I think it means what longing. Most commentators interpret this to mean a genuine heartfelt longing for Paul. In other words, the vehement desire here means all of a sudden our hearts changed and our attitudes changed and our outlook changed. Because now we really, 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 really wanted apostolic fellowship and instruction. We wanted Paul to show up. We wanted Paul to teach the Bible study again. 
zeal for the glory of God or the restoration of the sinner or for their own cleansing in the matter. What vindication vindication here might mean revenge. It might mean punishment. I don't think it means harm or injury to the person who sinned. I think Paul is using this in the context of a just punishment, an appropriate discipline where the assembly took the necessary corrective action. In other words, where the punishment meets the the crime, you're not looking for hurt or hurting other people. And this doesn't mean to be free from blame or that they were never to blame or that they didn't have something that they did wrong, where it says, in all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. I don't think Paul is saying that you weren't really immature, that you weren't really selfish, that you weren't really divisive, that you weren't really having a difficulty. I think what he's basically saying is that in spite of these difficulties, you were willing to take the necessary steps in order to go in a different direction. And now all of a sudden you begin to understand what real spiritual repentance looks like. We might think of these as evidences of godly sorrow and true repentance. So let me just sort of quantify it for you for just a moment. Have you ever had a discussion with someone and they said, I'm really sorry for what I did? And you said, are you sufficiently sorry that things are going to be different? That something is going to change? So let me put it to you this way. Godly sorrow true repentance and revival. The evidences for that, we might think of it this way. Number one, carefulness, eagerness to correct the sin, the pollution, the dirt, the wrong, the hurt. In other words, one of the evidence that godly sorrow and true repentance and revival is on its way is that you begin and I begin in our life that when we recognize that something is wrong, something is dirty, something is hurtful, that we recognize the wickedness and the sin and we say, guess what? This is wrong and I don't want it to be a part of my life anymore. Number two, personal cleansing. That is the recognition and acknowledgement of the sin and a willingness to turn, but not just to turn from the sin, but now to turn back to God and the resources of God. It either dealt with the sin in the camp or the leader. And so in this particular instance, one of two things is taking place in the text. It's talking about the young man who in 1 Corinthians was having the inappropriate relationship with his father's wife. It may refer to the people who stood in opposition to Paul, who questioned his authority and his integrity and his apostolic ministry, and now they had dealt with those people. But whether it means one or the other, the principle remains the same. The principle, of course, is when you see that something's wrong, are you willing to correct it? And number two, are you willing to experience the cleansing that comes from confessing your sin? 
turning from it and turning to God. Number three, indignation with sin. We might think of this as the anger that the sin ever happened and a willingness to combat the sin when it rears its ugly head again. Whether the issue is adultery, whether the issue is lying, whether the issue is outbursts of anger, whether the issue is take whatever issue you want, financial impropriety, sexual impropriety, whatever the problem, whatever the issue. Are you willing to say it's not good enough that I just simply say that this is wrong or bad or evil or self-destructive? Or destructive to our friendship and our relationship. It's a willingness to combat the sin with all the resources that are available by God and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Number four, fear. A healthy fear of God and punishment or discipline. That means a willingness to acknowledge the damage that's been done because of the transgression and the injury that it has brought to the relationship or to the church. And number five, vehement desire. That means a fervent desire to correct all the wrong and make it right. Spurgeon put it this way. That your repentance should become at least as notorious as your crime. And then zeal. A zealous commitment. That's number six. A commitment to tackle the task immediately because so much wrong has been done. A willingness to engage in a strenuous and extended campaign to overcome this issue for the sake of Jesus, for the unity of the church, and for the well-being of the body. We might even think about this as a zeal to lead all sinners to repentance. In other words... A zeal that holiness and humility and happiness can be those things that characterize our friendships and our relationships. And number seven, revenge. By that I mean vengeance. We might think of this as justice. Not not that you get even with someone, but rather the right discipline for the right transgression. We might think of this as punishing and correcting the evildoer. But I would put it even a little bit differently. Punishment is different from discipline. And let me help you kind of understand the difference. Punishment usually takes place because of the consequences of whatever wicked thing you've done. Let me give you an example. If a mom says to her son, please don't climb the tree. And the son goes, but the tree is inviting me. The tree is calling out to me. I feel like I have to climb this tree and the son climbs the tree and you guessed it. The worst thing that could happen does happen. He falls from the tree. He breaks his leg. Is it right for mom and dad to go and beat the child for disobedience? One says yes. Most of you said no. For those of you who said no. You're the right one. The rebellion and the disobedience and the consequences of the rebellion and disobedience is its own punishment. It isn't going to be helpful to beat the child at that point. But what do you do with the child who persists in climbing the tree? For the person who said yes, then guess what? You have a case. 
It's one thing in rebellion and disobedience to climb the tree and break your leg. But you would think that a person who climbs the tree and breaks their leg, that they're going to have learned their lesson. You would hope that they have. But what do you do with the person who consistently and persistently climbs the tree? Well, I think that that's where we have to deal with open sin and persistent divisiveness. And number eight, innocence. And by that, I mean the church, by godly sorrow and appropriate repentance, clears itself. That means a corrupt and polluted church is cleansed of all of the charges because a real change has taken place. And so in verse 12, it says, therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but rather That our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. Does Paul make reference again to the person involved in immorality or the person who was charging him with with being a wicked, evil hypocrite? The old King James Version says, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. The New American Standard says, but that your earnest care for us might be made manifest to you in the sight of God. Philip says, but to let you see yourselves in the sight of God, how deeply you really do care for us. And I think that that's the right translation. In other words, God has allowed this to happen. So that you could see yourselves. The way God sees you. Have you ever wanted that? Have you ever prayed the prayer? Lord, let me see myself the way you see me. And then you go, "Uh uh-oh. Uh-oh. I'm beginning to see myself the way that you see me. I think if we think about that in a balanced way, we begin to see ourselves as a person who's deeply loved by God, who is completely loved by God. And that God has done extraordinary things in order to bring you to a place of submission and humility to himself. He has overlooked so much. He has been so patient and kind and generous. Paul was certainly aware of the terrible wrongs that were committed by the immoral person. And Paul was certainly aware of the terrible avalanche of pain and horror and treachery and betrayal that takes place when sin Rears its ugly head. But Paul wants them to understand that he thinks of himself as their father in the faith. And that he does in fact have both favor and faith and authority from the Lord. Paul wants to be a source of blessing. And a source of comfort. And a source of joy. And I think. That Paul is trying to come to grips with the fact that it isn't the person who suffered wrong. Or the person who perpetrated the wrong. But rather a real God who is willing to comfort and forgive and restore all the parties concerned. So that there could be renewed friendship and relationship. And so in verse 13 he says, therefore we have been comforted in your comfort. This is just simply an expression which means we were encouraged. In other words, the chain of encouragement. The Corinthians Encouraged Titus and Titus encouraged Paul and Paul encouraged Titus and the Corinthians. 
It says in verse 14, for if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I'm not ashamed. For if in anything I have boasted to him, that is to Titus, about you, I'm not ashamed. In other words, it's Paul's way of saying, I bragged about you to Titus, and I'm not sorry about anything that I said. I bragged about you. I bragged about how much I loved you, and how much I cared about you, and how much I needed you. And he says, But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so, our boasting to Titus was found true. It was his way of saying, guess what? Everything I said about you turned out to be correct. I said, you know what? The Corinthians are struggling in a couple of areas, but there's hope. You know what? They have been immature and immoral and unfaithful. But guess what? I think they're going to change. Don't you? And in verse 15, he says, and his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all. How with fear and trembling you received him. In other words, when Titus showed up to the Corinthians. The way that they responded to Titus was. We understand that Paul's not happy with us, that Paul has some deep concerns, that Paul is grieved over the fact that we've allowed sin to continue in our camp. And we've come to realize what a mistake it was. And we so much want to serve the Lord. Have you ever stopped to consider how Paul poured his life into other people? Think of all the people Paul discipled. Mark, Silas, Titus, Timothy, Trophimus, Tychicus, Aquila, Priscilla, Luke, Demas. Paul thought that the best thing for Paul to do was to invest his life in others. By the way, my reading of the New Testament, there was only two casualties. John Mark and Demas. One dropped out temporarily. And one dropped out for good. In 2 Timothy 4.10, he says, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Paul pours his heart out. He loves people. He cares about them. He ministers to them. And after loving them, caring for them, and ministering to them, some people turn their back on him. Oddly enough, I'm comforted by that. Because if Paul had dropouts, and I am so much less than Paul, I don't have any right to be upset if someone decides to drop out of my life. In conclusion, just quickly, unity. I want you to think about this. In verse 16, therefore I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. Listen to what Paul's saying. And because of that, I rejoice that I have confidence in you and everything. Paul's rejoicing and confidences are, are linked to the church's revival and repentance. So when he says, I rejoice that I have confidence in you and everything, does, does this mean that he thinks that the Corinthians are perfect people and they're never going to have a problem ever again? I don't think that that's what it means. I think it, what it means is, in spite of the pain, in spite of the problems, in spite of the difficulties, I think we're going to make it. And I want you to just do the math real quickly. Unity. 
The problem of division solved, 1 Corinthians 3.3. Humility, the problem of pride solved, 1 Corinthians 3.18. Love, the problem of allowing questionable social practices and stumbling blocks in the midst corrected. Spiritual gifts, a revival of the exercise of the spiritual gifts properly. A discontinuance of the abuse of the spiritual gifts. A revival of doctrinal truth, the problem of allowing and embracing doctrinal error. Now again, think about it. The Corinthians had a problem with division. The Corinthians had a problem with pride. The Corinthians had a problem of immorality. The Corinthians had a problem with stumbling blocks. The Corinthians had a problem with spiritual gift abuse. The Corinthians had a problem with doctrine. And now there's unity. Now there's humility. Now there's morality. Now there's love. Now there's mutual encouragement and comfort. We've run out of time, but let me just close with just one more statement to you. Would you characterize yourself as a person who can give comfort and receive comfort? If this passage is saying anything, it's saying this. We are all candidates for comfort. Paul, in spite of being an apostle, in this chapter, reveals a message. And part of the message was this. I was hurt. I was down. I was desperate. I was in need. And you comforted me. Jesus is committed to us when we hurt, when we experience pressure on the outside and pressure on the inside. And so it shouldn't come as a shock and as a surprise to you that God might send you as a source of medicine, a balm, a comfort. And so part of the point of this passage is, in fact, that the ministry that God entrusted to Paul and the Corinthians of mutual comfort becomes a a picture of a mutual ministry that you have and that I have. An obligation for me to comfort you. And an obligation for you to comfort me. To give comfort. To receive comfort. No wonder Spurgeon preached. The refiner is never far from the mouth of the furnace when his gold is in the fire. Do you understand what that means? The refiner is never far from the mouth of the furnace when his gold is in the fire. The refiner is God. The fire is your trials. And the gold? Well, the gold is the thing that's so, so important about who you are. If you're in the fire, then that means Jesus is very, very close by, looking into the flame, watching the dross melt away, seeing the impurities purged, waiting for a pure and polished and precious metal. That's you. That's your gifts. And your callings. 
that he's drawing out so that he can use you for his glory and for your good. And when that happens, revival breaks out in the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, it's a difficult passage, but Lord, we pray that as we try to make sense of it, as we try to understand what it means to understand injury and hurt and comfort and joy and how broken things can be put back together again and how people who hurt each other can can and should be held accountable and responsible for what they do. But Lord, we thank you that we have resources that are unavailable to the world around us. We have a Jesus who loves us so much. We have an ability to confess our sin and then utilize the resources of forgiveness and reconciliation so that broken things can be made whole. And so, Father, we pray that you would teach us of why it's such a bad idea to hurt each other and why it's such a good idea to forgive each other and to be reconciled to one another and to receive comfort and to extend comfort. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's.